Good morning, Park Hill. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there were no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. You guys doing all right? Yeah, it's going to feel like a lecture a little bit because that's just what I do for a living. <laughs> so uh, I can't help myself. But uh, my name is Matthew. Um, I'm excited to be here today. I am an elder at Park Hill. Um, I've really enjoyed serving this church this way. And uh, it's alongside a great team of leaders whom I get to call friends, which I'm really excited about. Um, typically, I'm behind a guitar, which is awesome because I don't really see you too much. But today, I'm out of luck and I see everyone. Um, so I am a little bit freaking out. If I speak too fast, I'm sorry. I'm going to try to slow down, slow down but uh, it's hard. So anyhow, we, like Evan said, we're in this series called God Breathed, and um, we're going to look at the importance of reading the Bible in its own term. That's what I'd like to cover today. Um, and one of the underlying assumptions we're going to see in this series is the idea that the Bible is a library of books written over many centuries in a wide variety of genres was not written to us, but was written for us. Can we say that together? The Bible was written not to us, but... One more time, was not written, but for us. Okay, why am I saying this? Well, let me start with my own story uh, of how I came to realize this was actually a key important thing in understanding science and, and the Bible. Um, I grew up in a fairly conservative evangelical church in France in the Champagne region. I'm uh, number two of a family of eight kids. I do not know what quiet means. Never had it, never understand it. <laughs> uh, two of eight, and um, so big family, 23 grandkids out of today, so big family. Um, but for me, I, I was kind of a kid who was always very curious, like why, 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 why about everything. In fact, I'm still curious today, <laughs> I just have to ask why about everything, I'm, I'm very annoying in that way. But, um, but I was taught to read Genesis, like many of you, in, in this literal way, right, where Genesis was the account of creation and God created everything in six 24-hour days. Never questioned, it was like, cool, yeah. Uh, I grew up in a post-modern, post-post-post-post-modern culture, French, <laughs> and um, and of course, you'd stop in school, in science classes, evolution, like everybody is. And so the way we handled it in my family was simple. At school, say what a teacher wants you to say. At home, you know what you believe. Simple. I did that. It worked. Got the grades, moved on, 
forgot about it. Uh, but I was very nerdy. I just enjoyed science, um, just understanding how things were working and why. And so after high school, I decided to go to college, uh, studied physics and chemistry, and then fell in love with chemistry. Um, don't ask me why. I still don't know, but I just like it. It's fun. And so eventually I completed my, my bachelor's, then my master's, and then my PhD in chemistry. And then I moved to San Diego uh, 15 years ago to do a, a, a postdoc, what we call at UCSD. I worked there for two and a half years, and then in 2011, I started a chemistry professor position at Porno Manazarin University, not too far from here. I know, many of you were in my classes. Yep. <laughs> so, but here's the, the, the interesting thing, is I had never revisited um, the idea of science behind origins. I just didn't care. I'm like, I don't care. I really didn't. Um, now, it was interesting, a funny story, is when I was interviewed, the chair of chemistry asked me, so, hey, what do you think about the conflict between science and faith? And I'm like, what conflict? What, is there a conflict? <laughs> where, where, uh, where was I? <laughs> I missed it. <laughs> no idea. Literally no idea. So then I went to uh, talk to a biology professor, and the biology professor said, hey, so what's your thought on, on an evolution creation? I'm like, well, that's your business, dude. You're a biologist. I'm a chemist. I don't care. I really don't care. That's your, you figure this out. I don't have to. Um, I said that. I still was hired. <laughs> I don't know why. But anyhow, it worked out. <laughs> so been there 11 years now, and, and honestly, after those questions, um, it's kind of, I could not unsee it. I could not just not ask the question, right? Because I'm curious, and I had to figure it out. And so I started doing some, some of the, the digging into the science, and the digging into the reading of like, okay, what's up with origins? What's up with science on this one? Um, and man, it was hard. It was very hard for me, actually. It was like a, a faith challenge. Because what happened was the general consensus about how things came about did not match what I had read in Genesis. I'm like, oh, dang it, that's, that's not great, that's not good. Uh, but the, here's the truth, too. I didn't have no desire to give up science because I loved it and it was fun. I learned a lot of stuff and it was really passionate. I was very passionate about it. But I also had no desire to give up the Bible because I grew up with the Bible speaking into my life in deep, powerful ways. So I didn't want to give up both. So over a couple of years um, of, of challenges in my, in my faith, um, ask my wife. She, she thought I would lose my faith on this one. Um, I actually came to realize that I did not have, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and today what I'd like to show you, if you'd like to go with me on this journey, is you can discover that actually it doesn't have to be conflict between science and faith. It doesn't have to. And that's freeing, honestly. So perhaps you can relate to my journey. I know many of you here in the room are, uh, have science backgrounds and then maybe work in biotech or uh, enjoy science. And you wonder, like, how do we make this work? Like I was asking about a few years ago. Or maybe you have kids, you are going to school like I was, and you're like, how do I handle this whole thing? How do I deal with this? Um, the answer and the key is really in what I just said earlier. The Bible was unwritten to us, but it was written for us. So here's the thing. Why does it matter? Uh, it matters because if we do not learn, yeah, thank you. If we do not learn how to read the Bible in its own term, we are prone to serious misinterpretations. And that often leads to division in the body of Christ. Now, here's the thing. God chose to reveal himself and his message to us through human writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's our responsibilities as followers of Jesus to interpret and understand the claims that they made in order to hear God speak to us. Now, to be fair, who's not busy? Yep, <laughs> yeah, everybody's busy. We have busy schedules, right? Sometimes you have a bunch of exams to do in class, you try to finish your degree. Some of you may have like two jobs to make ends meet. Maybe you have three kids in the house going crazy, running around, you're never sleeping. It's just hard. Life is busy, right? The truth is, we all live busy lives, full of good things and full of distractions. I want to ask you 
to check on your iPhone how many hours you spent on it last week. <clears throat> but you can figure this out. We're distracted, but also it's just, we're just very busy. So it's hard to figure out the context, right? It takes time. And also you may ask, well, isn't that Evan's job anyway? He's the pastor of this church. He can do that for me. I don't have to do it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. But here's the thing. If we want to be with Jesus, become with Jesus, and do what Jesus did, it's our job to figure things out. And here's the thing you have to remember, which hopefully gives you a sense of hope. Being a disciple of Jesus and trying to interpret the scripture faithfully is a journey. You don't have to figure it out right away. It takes time. And here's the thing. You're not alone. Why do you think we do this thing every week? To remind ourselves of the context and the culture. And here's the thing. Not only are you joining millions of people around the world who are trying to figure things out, you're also joining millions of people who have gone before us who try to figure things out. We're not alone. Right? Now, here's the other thing people may ask. was like, well, I don't have an MDiv. I don't have a theological, you know, theological training. I, I cannot even read 200-page commentary before I go open my Bible. That's fair. But here's the thing. It's challenging. It's not easy. But we don't have to be trained Bible nerds to read the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Let me say that again. We do not have to be trained Bible nerds to read the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Takes a bit of practice, yeah. Takes community, yes, but we don't have to be Bible nerds. Now, if you're Bible nerds, good, but we don't have to be that way. So where do we start? How do we, how do we figure this out? How do we kind of link this kind of whole thing between the context and then Genesis? I think it's great for us to be aware of our current cultural context to figure this out. Because there's many challenges with reading a text. It's written in different language, from a, for a different group of people in a different country and different continents. So it's not easy. Now, even though it's different, I don't want you guys to lose sight of the fact that the Bible was to return for us. But remember, it's not written to us. Now, a picture is worth a thousand, a thousand words, yeah? So I, I thought I would put this up for you to show you. Here's what you have to do when you go from San Diego to Jerusalem. A few thousand miles, seven, you know, seven. Now, if you want to go to the other side, you can, 11,000 miles. Good luck. It's going to take longer if you want to go through Asia and stuff like that. Um, FYI, you're going through French Canada here, and you're going through France. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought you should double whammy. Okay, whatever. Um, but the point is, it's, it's, it's a distance, right? But now, it's not fair to just look at a map and say we're traveling to a different country because you're not only traveling in distance, you're also traveling where? In time. How many years? Yeah, yeah, about 3,000. So we should add to the map one key thing. Yeah, 3,000 years. Okay, cool. Now, here's the thing. 3,000 years ago, the map did not look like that to be fair, right? You didn't have America, you didn't have Europe, it just looked very different. But hopefully you get the point that you have to travel to a different country and you have to travel back in time. Easy or hard? Oh yeah, not easy, not easy, right? So here's the thing. What's interesting is I know most of you know this about the Bible. You know this. You know the Bible is not written to you, like you don't read it as like it was the newspaper, right? But it's what's interesting to me is that in many ways, we forget the implication of what that means when we open our Bibles every day. Interestingly enough, whenever you watch a movie, Gladiator, Avatar, Star Wars, whatever you watch, you have no problem putting your brain to that setting. You don't even question it. You don't watch a Marvel movie that says, nobody can do that. You don't do that. You're like, enjoy the movie, right? Enjoy the show. If you read fictions, same thing. You don't be like, well, that's dumb. Nobody would do that. You don't do it because you're in the setting of the book or the movie, right? But somehow with the Bible, we too easily forget the importance of the cultural, political, 
social and geographical context. And here's what I wonder. Perhaps it's because that we have overemphasized the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and underemphasized the fact that it was written by humans. It kind of bothers us. Like, no, it's, it's this Bible. It's the Word of God. Yeah, who was it written by? Humans. And we, kind of, we need to bring back the balance of both. A human book inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here's what Evan reminded us a few weeks ago. It has to be both, equally weighted. So let's do a quick, um, a quick thing. Let, let's compare the cultural context of our days with um, the ancient Near East time. And I'm going to use uh, what Dr. John Walton at uh, Wheaton says, the concept of cultural river. And um, I don't like to lecture for too long, so I'm going to ask you to participate. Only 400 people around it. No worries. It's not stressful, I promise. Look, I'm not shaking yet. Okay, so here we go. Here's a question for you, and I'd like to guess your answer, actually. What words would you use to define our modern Western cultural context? If you think of the world today, in San Diego, 21st century, what are some words that come up to you? Can you guys shout it out to me? Individualistic. Yep, true. Oh, my, it's all about me. Me, 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 me. Yep. Partisan, a little bit. Yep. Others, come on. Skeptic, yes. What else? I didn't I missed it. Consumerism, yep. I want more, 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 and more. Correct. What else? Distracted. What else? I didn't hear it. Oh, efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. What else? Secular. Yeah, in some ways. Yeah, agree. What is it? Bitsy? Oh, busy. Yeah, but like, I don't know that word. <laughs> Maybe I'm French. <laughs> okay, busy. Yeah, very busy. Yeah, what else? Technology. Absolutely. Who doesn't have an iPhone in their pocket or a phone in their pocket? Right. Yeah, we'll full of technology. So let me uh, show you the words that I, I, I came together about a list of 10. First one, we're hyper-individualistic. Not just individualistic. It's America. We push it further, right? We go far and far. We push everything, every limit. Hyper-individualism is very key for our culture here. One more thing. Capitalism. Right? Social progress, responsibility. That's our culture. That's, that's what we feel like today. Democracy. We have rights. These are my rights, right? Rational thinking. Oh, yeah, we think rationally. Modern technology, as you guys know. Free speech. I say what I want whenever I want. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Social media. You know what that is a little bit. Natural laws and scientific thinking, right? This is the culture you live in, right? I don't know if you feel that, the hyper-individualistic thing that we live in in society, the social media, the pool, the distraction, the business, it's constant. That's what we live in right now. Um, there's a, a, a word that was coined uh, by a professor at Harvard. He called us weird. And weird, he means like Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And he said, weird people are highly individualistic, self-obsessed, control-oriented, non-conformist, and analytical. Does that resonate? That's what we are. If you watch the news, if you look at social media, this is who we are. Now, let's do that, and let's do the same thing with ancient Near East context. So let's go back and let me ask you the same question. What words will you use to define the ancient cultural context of Genesis? That's a hard one because none of you were there. And it's about 3,000 years ago. So do we have any history nerds in the, in the room that could help us out? Anything you kind of think about the old times? What is it? Communal, yeah, community, big deal, absolutely. What else? 
Kingdoms. Oh, yeah. Kings and kingdoms. Absolutely. Patriarchy. Yep. What else? What is it? Uneducated. Yeah. Or differently educated, I would say. No formal systems. Yeah. What else? Family. Yeah. Kinship. Big deal. Yeah. Anything else? Agriculturals. Yeah. So let me show you side by side what I have. So on the left, on the left is what we talked about. Here's the list on the right. Kinship. Strong community. Right? People were like really, you know, marrying cousins. Right? That was a big, big, strong community. Uh, we had trade-based economy. All right? We had kingdoms. It's all about hierarchy. That's what it was about. And then God is active and present. They also made no distinction between the natural and supernatural, the idea of enchantment. That for them was not at all a way of thinking. And last but not least, which we're going to see in a few minutes, they had the idea of a solid sky and a, and a closed cosmos. Okay. Do you picture how different these are? Now, it's not an exhaustive list, but it provides a starting point for us to recognize how different things are. Now, why does it matter? Because as I said earlier, we have a tendency to forget how much our current culture and worldview shapes how we read Scripture. It's just natural. We don't even think about it. It's just normal. But here's the interesting thing. For ancient, ancient Israelites, this was the way they were thinking. They would, it would be unfathomable to think about democracy. It made no sense to them. So here's the thing, rather than, you know, swimming slower in that river, you pick up your swimming suit, you dry up, you change river. That's what you have to do every time you read scripture. Let me say that again. You don't just swim slower in that river, that may help. You actually stop swimming in that river, pick up your swimming suit, dry up, swim in this one. Does that make sense? Because that's what they're thinking about, not what we're thinking about. Are you ready to swim? Cool. Let's go. First one, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created what? One more time. In the beginning, God created what? Ah, all right. We're going to go further, I promise. But let's stop right here for a minute. Let me ask you a question. Is that a theological claim or a scientific claim? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Theological or scientific? It's not a trick question. It's a theological claim. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why? If it's, well, first, if it's theological, the good news is you are free to believe it or not. You could say, I don't believe God created everything. Like, hey, good for you. Or you could say, I believe God created everything, and good for you as well. So first, you're free to believe it. That's an important thing. But now you may ask, well, how do I know this is not a scientific claim? Two answers. One, the scientific method did not exist when the Bible was written. Second, scientists cannot use the tools of science to prove or disprove this claim. What do I mean by that? I cannot go into my research lab and put up a bunch of things together to prove that God created the earth and the heavens. I can't do that. There's no scientific method I can use with experiments, hypotheses that would allow me to do that. Why? Because God is not made of atoms. God is not governed by the natural laws. Now, he submits himself to it, but he's not governed by them. So there's no way I can prove or disprove this claim. And this is very good news. Very, very good news. Because it resolves many unnecessary conflicts that have been created, mostly in the U.S., by the way, between science and the Bible. Resolves it. Second, the Bible makes a very important theological statement about who is a creator. And who is a creator? Who is a creator? 
Yeah, we know that. We believe that. But science tried to figure out how and why it works the way it does. So here's the thing. Both are asking very different questions and providing very different answers. Yeah? So here's the thing that may be helpful for you if you're around scientists or people around. No one can actually claim that science disproves God. You can say that. Because science cannot prove or disprove God. That is not its purpose. That is not what it can do. So no one can, now someone may, may want to say that, like I don't believe in God. Great, don't believe in God. But no one should tell you science disproves God. That is not true. Because this is a theological claim and science cannot do theology. They're just different world. Right? That's pretty cool. I think it's cool. Now again, some scientists who are, don't believe in God may say God doesn't exist. Great, good for you. But don't we can say science, science does not prove or disprove God. First thing. Second thing, and I think it's important for us and for those who are more maybe science nerds in the room, if you believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it implies that God also created everything, including what? The natural laws, the world around us. So Christians should not be afraid of science. Why are we afraid? God created it. In fact, the early church fathers, they coined the idea of that God revealed himself in the book of nature and in the book of scripture. And that's powerful. To be clear, I'm not diminishing the importance of the Bible nor its authority. Instead, I'm joining Paul in saying this in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what, was, what has been made so that people are without excuse. I hope you leave today with a sense of hope that God the Creator made this world and is not afraid of us trying to understand it. It's not as if God said, oops, now humans have been able to go to space, they've gone too far. You know? No. On the contrary, I'm quite sure that God is pleased with us seeking to understand how our world has been created because it honors Him. When I discover science, when I do drug discovery in my research, I, I'm in awe of God. Why? Because science, you guys, is 90% failure. We fail all the time. It's a lifestyle. You get used to it, I promise. It just never works. Nothing works it, until it does once in a while, and you're pretty happy about it. But when you understand science, like, whoa, that's amazing. God is amazing. So what we're going to do now is we're going to read through Genesis 1 together. It's going to be a little bit long, so hang in there. Evan warned you it's going to be more lectured than uh, preaching. But um, I'm going to ask you two things. First, I'm going to ask you to keep your ancient Near East hat on. So remember which river we're swimming in, yeah? The one on the right. Okay. Second, I need some help because <laughs> my French accent gets in the way. Um, so when it says, and God said, I'd like you guys to say that with me, yeah? Can we practice? And... Cool. And then when it says, and there was an evening, and there was a morning the first day, I'd love for help for that one too. Can you do that? So let's practice. And there was, and there was the first day. Great. So we're going to do that together so you can engage. Let this text wash over you. And try to put yourself in this mindset of someone who would be 7,600 miles away, 3,000 years ago. How would they listen and hear this text? Let's start. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Uh, a few people didn't say it. One more time. 
Much better. Thank you so much. I thought some people were sleeping at the back. Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. And God called the light day, and darkness he called night. Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky. Four more to go. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the plant produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruits with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruits with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. The third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was, there was. And God said, let the water team with living creatures, let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the seas and every living thing with which the water teams that moves about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth, fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Getting closer. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals, livestock, skipping, the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let, make, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God bless them. I lost my thoughts. <laughs> Too many texts. Thank you. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God saw all that he had made, skipping a little bit, and he was good. And there was, and there was. And finally, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished all the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had been done. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Full of truth claims. Amazing. Let me ask you two questions. I can't help you. I keep asking questions. I know I'm annoying, but you're stuck with me here for a little bit. Do these verses provide the details of how everything was created? No, it doesn't. It's not a true question. Now, it says that God spoke, right? And God said, and God spoke. But it doesn't provide, like, the, the scientific details of how, right? 
That was not in the mind of the authors of Genesis. Another question. Do these verses tell you when God created the heavens and the earth? What does it say? In? One more time, in? All right, when was that? When was that? In the beginning, right. When was it? In the beginning. All right, we got second like in a circle of arguments here. <laughs> right, in the beginning. When? I, I, we don't know. It doesn't say. Now, here's the thing. Many people have said, like I grew up, that if the Bible is inerrant, then we ought to read the Bible and Genesis literally. Otherwise, you might as well not trust anything in the Bible. Someone told this to me one time. But here's what I would say. If you ask the Bible to be read literally, you're basically asking the Bible to be written in English in 21st century San Diegans. That's not the Bible, you guys. The Bible was not written... Oh, you missed it. The Bible was not written, but was written... Exactly. It speaks to us, but not the questions we ask. Unfortunately, reading the Bible literally has pitted science versus faith. That's what I discovered 11 years ago. And it's forcing people to choose one or the other. Are you going to be a scientific and a scientist and never talk about God, or are you going to be a Christian and never talk about science? That's sad. I don't think it has to be that way. Now, if I were to put my PhD professor hat back on, swim back into my Western River, and just look at the text from a scientific, pure scientific point of view, what would happen? Can I show you? All right, let's do it. First one. So, and God said that there would be light, and there was light. Cool. How can there be light without a sun? The sun appears on day four. I'm a little bit puzzled. Second question. How can there be an evening and a morning without a sun that allows for the earth to rotate? Because last time I checked, the reason we have evening and morning is because we turn around the sun. The sun, the sun is still not there. I'm being scientific, so bear with me, please, for a minute. Right? Also, how can light be separated from darkness when, by definition, darkness means no light? I'm confused. Move on. Next one. And God said there would be a vault between the waters that separate water from water. Last time you took a plane, did you hit the, the vault? Because I did not. Is there a vault that just blocks everything from... No. No, there's, of course not. A few more. Next one. It says, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs that mark sacred times and days and years. I'd like to know how can the sun and the moon be in the vault when last time I checked, the sun was 93 million miles away from here. They're not in the vault. And also, it says God created two lights. Well, how about the supernovas, the galaxies, the other suns around the planet? Are they not being created by God? I know I'm annoying. <laughs> I'll tell you, I ask why all the time, so I'm here, right, here we are. Um, how do you even make sense of like, the differences in creation accounts between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Let's look at Genesis 2 together, side 15. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed man from the dust. That seems so different than what we just read together. Right? It's like, what the heck? Is the author not understanding what's going on here? Now, what I just did is ridiculous, right? And you'd be like, oh, see, we cannot trust scientists. <laughs> um, no, we can trust scientists. I think it's just a misreading of the scripture. 
Here's the thing, slide 16. When we impose our modern context to Scripture, we always end up expecting the text to answer our questions. This may be frustrating, and I'm sorry, but the Bible, what if the Bible was to provide actually more important answers to more important questions that you and I have, and maybe we need? I'm not saying that the questions about origins are not important. I am not saying you should not study science. I'm saying that usually they're not usually the questions the text is asking. And it does not mean that the Bible is not true. Hear me out. It does not mean that the Bible is not true. I do believe the Bible is true. But the truth claims made in the Bible have to be understood on their own terms, not my terms. I don't get to dictate what the Bible says. I don't get to be like, I'm a scientist, I got a PhD, so therefore, that is arrogance. And thinking that I know better because I'm in the 21st century San Diego with a doctor in chemistry than those writers is arrogance as well. I am not better. I have a different perspective, and they have also good, good things to teach me. And we should be humble and be like, what is the text actually saying? And not be like, well, it should be saying this. That's not what it says. Now, that begs the questions. Are we going to wrap up as we wrap up? What is Genesis actually asking and answering then? If it's not answering my question, what questions does it answer? To answer this question, we should look at a, a quick picture uh, that would be helpful. This is what ancient Near East people had in view when they thought about the earth. Right? So, on top, there was the chamber in the heavens. That's where the rain came from. It was stored up there, and it would pour down. Makes sense. Right? And then you had in the vault, the sun and the stars and the moon. Two things that governs the day and the night. And then the earth was, uh, of course, you know, standing on pillars, because otherwise it would sink. And under the earth, of course, you have water. Why do you have water? Because if you dig deep, you find water. Well, there must be water under. Right? And then that's what it looks like. On top you have waters, and then waters under. So um, that's interesting. When, when you picture the earth, what do you picture? A sphere, blue, gorgeous, right? A lot of like oceans and earth. Yeah, that's a very recent way of thinking. That is not how they thought about the scriptures. Now here's the fascinating thing, and, and please pay attention to that. God did not choose to correct their view of the cosmos. Why? No idea, but he did not. Let me say that again. God did not choose to correct their view of the cosmos. Did not. And by the way, God is not choosing to correct my current view of the cosmos, which may be wrong. He doesn't do that with me today. So like, dude, if only you knew, you know? He doesn't do that. He didn't do that to Genesis either. So what is Genesis 1 and 2 actually saying? Let's take a look at an image to uh, hopefully make sense of it by a professor at... Um, at Houston Graduate School of Theology. In fact, when you read the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, it says this. In the first three days, what was unformed became formed. The space were created. And then on day four to six, what you have is what was unfilled became filled. It's a beautiful story of what was unformed became formed, what was unfilled became filled. And on the seventh day, God rested. The author of Genesis depicts this beautiful account of creation in a series of day, day where the first half describes the ordering of non-ordered space or the forming an unformed space. And the second half shows the creation objects that fill those spaces. That's why there's no sun on day one. It's coming on day four. But on day one, there's a space where the sun can be and the lights and the moon. Now, here's the thing. Remind me, we just read that. 
It's not a trick question. On day six, what was created on day six? People, humans, humankind, that's right. Good. And whose image do they represent? They represent God's image. That's powerful. You and I have been created by God to represent His image. Let that sink in for a minute. You're not an accident. You're not an accident. God created you. God created me. And what are we here for? To reflect His image. In fact, some scholars view the pattern in a creation story the same as the pattern in the creation of a temple. And back in the days, do you know what was at the middle of a temple? The image of who, typically? Of the God you would worship, right? You go to temple to worship the God, so you see an image of a God. Who's created in the middle of the earthly temple? Humans. We do represent God's image. So I know we like to know how and when, uh, you know, like the science stuff is fun, fascinating stuff. But I don't know about you as human beings, but I like to know, it's, it's important for me to know that God created me and I'm in his image. That's an important life-defining you know, life, life moment. So here's the way I would say it. Genesis is not interesting in answering the how and the when about our origins. Instead, it's primarily concerned with answering the who and the why. Who created God? Why did he create you? To be in his image. And I think the who and the why matters more than the how and when. Now, of course, if you want to study the how and when, please do it. We need more Christian scientists around, I promise. Just go for it. And have fun. It's fun. It's enjoyable. It's just amazing how you can discover how nature was made. But here's the thing. We are all as human asking different questions in our lives. And you will always, at some point, ask these questions. Question that we ask. Who are we? Where are we? What's wrong? Is there a solution to this problem? That's the deep questions we're asking on top of asking the how and when. And I think answering these questions has a profound effect on us. But see, here's the thing. Genesis describes the creation of a world that was chaotic. But when God came, he spoke and breathed order into this world. And what came out is a garden where humans can flourish. God created mankind in his image to rule over this world and to live in unity with God. Heaven and earth were united. This is who we are, and this is where we are. Let me say that again. God created mankind in his image to rule over this world and to live in unity with God. Heaven and earth were united. This is who we are and where we are. Now, for the what is wrong question, we have to turn to Genesis 3. And you realize there's a full narrative there. And we're sinners, separated from God. Is there a solution? Yeah. Where's the solution? Who is the solution? Exactly. This is what the story of Genesis is telling us. And it sets the tone for the rest of the Bible, I think. If we get this right, we have a much clearer understanding of what the Bible narrative is all about, which is God reuniting heaven and earth through Jesus and eventually allowing us once again to rule with him on a renewed earth. This is profound and freeing. God reuniting heaven and earth through Jesus and eventually allow us to once again rule with him on a renewed earth. Isn't that profound? That's deep questions we're asking. Genesis is answering those questions. And I'd rather have the answers to those questions to figure out the how and when. They still matter, but that's not, there's some deeper question the text is actually doing there. That is the beauty of it. 
Because again, the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. That's the for us part. It speaks to us. It tells you where you are, where I am, where am I going, what's wrong with this world. Genesis answers that question for you. That's powerful. But the text speaks for itself. So before we come to the table, let me ask you one last question. What happens on the seventh day? God did what? One more time, God did what? Rested, exactly, rested, because all the chaos was now ordered. All the non-order was ordered. And he declared it holy, yeah? Now, you may know the New Testament, Evan says this a lot, the New Testament is full of hyperlink with the Old Testament. Let me show you what that looks like in the gospel, in the well-known gospel of Matthew. Let's read this together. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Let's read this together, please. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Hyperlink, rests, rests. What does that remind you of? Genesis 1. See, here's the thing. In Jesus, we get to partake in the same rest that God took on the seventh day. It's an invitation to recognize and submit to a triune God who brings order out of chaos. Don't you long to rest in this chaotic, hyper-individualistic, self-obsessed culture? Always busy, never stopping, never stopping, grinding, grinding until when? Jesus is saying, come to me. I will give you rest. See, he and only he is able to bring you rest. Now, here's the thing. Rest does not mean a pain-free life. We will have suffering. Pain will come. And many of you here are going through pain. God did not promise a pain-free life. I'm sorry. But what Genesis tells us and what Jesus emphasized, in Jesus we can find rest because the God who created everything in the beginning out of non-order made order, out of chaos made order, is this is the God we trust in that can bring about rest. So it's not a pain-free life, but it's a Jesus-full a Jesus life. Let's pray. God, you are amazing. full of glory and majesty. Words can describe how amazing you are. And yet, God, you allowed us to understand and seek to understand how things have been created. You gave us minds that are brilliant to discover who you are. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for how you've created everything. We get to see you through creation. That's amazing. Thank you for the eyes that we can see things knows that we can smell, ears that we can hear. God, you have created us. We are not here by accident. So God, today, may we come to you. May we come to you, Jesus, recognizing that you, only you, can bring rest for our weary souls. And God, I pray that as for many years we've divided over science and faith, today may we come back and recognize that you are in fact answering questions that we long for through, your, through scriptures. So God, come.
Jesus, have your way among us. Speak to us. Bring rest to your people. In Jesus' name.